Welcome to Not Cleared. I'm Matt Franklin, the digital media producer at the Center for Security Policy. And I'm Morgan Worthland, the chief of staff. Today, we're talking to David Wormser, a senior analyst here at the Center. And we're talking to him about his career in the federal government and how the bureaucracy has weaponized investigations against political appointees. His story about working in the George W. Bush administration will shed a lot of light on the Trump years for those of us not well-versed in bureaucratic infighting. So just let's start with what jobs you had as a federal employee and when. The first experience with the federal government for me was actually as a Navy reservist. I was uh, recruited uh, into the direct commission officers program in 1989 as an intelligence officer in the Navy. So from um, 1990 on roughly. I spent my weekends uh, at the Pentagon as part of a DIA unit that mans a National Military Joint Intelligence Center, which is the 24-hour alert center that's at the center, essentially, a, of, a, of a hub of a spoke system where you have all the intelligence agencies and their 24-hour alert centers reporting to the Pentagon. So on weekends, I would be on the Middle East desk there as a Navy intelligence officer. And then also uh, during the summers, I would have to do uh, a number of uh, stints at sea as a Navy intelligence officer. So my first real experience was as a Navy intelligence officer. But then the first uh, civilian employment with the government emanated from that. It was in 1991. Uh, President Bush, Bush 43, had already been elected and John Bolton had already decided uh, to bring me into the State Department but there was a tremendous amount of resistance uh, by Colin Powell and, and Armitage, uh, Sec Deputy Secretary of State Armitage, uh, Richard Armitage, uh, against my coming. So there was a lot of slowness in getting there. Why were they against you coming in? They believed that I was part of a network that was aligned with Richard Pearl and John Bolton. And for them, that was an inimical enemy type structure that they were not going to allow come to state. So they used any mechanism they could to keep me out. So the first thing they did was use my security clearance. Even though I had a top secret security clearance from the DIA that was active, in fact, being used on the weekends uh, of the highest level, it was what they call code word SCI. Uh, there wasn't a lot I wasn't allowed to see. Uh, they used the fact that I wasn't at state. They, they, they denied me for the first few months a clearance, which would be necessary for actually showing up at work at the State Department, saying that they can't honor the security clearance given by the DIA, even though the actual adjudication of code word clearance is by the CIA and DIA. So they wouldn't even honor the clearance from the organization that ultimately would be justifying my code word clearance. It was a ruse. They used the fact that I had been born a dual Swiss citizen, which you can't do much about. Uh, you can't really get rid of your Swiss citizenship. So they used that to say, uh, let's figure this out, and they held up my clearances. So for about six months, they held up my clearances, and then 9-11 hit. Before we get to 9-11, what was the resistance to Bolton and Richard Pearl? Was it just ideological differences or dislike? 
It was ideological and also clique. Armitage and Powell, especially Armitage, had a very tribal understanding of government cliques. They had their loyal people, uh, and they weren't going to tolerate anybody entering that circle that they didn't trust and wasn't part of their clique. It had an ideological overtone as well, uh, so it wasn't completely clean of, po of, of political uh, ideas, but it was also very personal. Armitage had his people, and that was it. He wasn't going to tolerate. Some later would say that there was an element of corruption involved. Possibly. We did see signs of such things, but nevertheless, uh, he, was, he was determined. So it's not unlike high school. Yeah, it's kind of like high school, exactly. <laughs> you were in this crowd or that crowd, and if you try to mix that, you're going to be in trouble. And so he he did that to keep keep us out, but it, it began to acquire a heavy ideological content to it. I don't know if the ideas followed the clique or the clique the ideas or so forth, but it definitely acquired both aspects. Okay. So 9-11 hits. Where were you on that day? What were you, what do you remember? <laughs> I was waiting to get into the State Department still with the clearances, and it hit, and uh, I, was, uh, I was downstairs in my house. I saw it, the first plane came, and I saw that it was a big plane, uh, and I, I knew it wasn't a mistake, just seeing the size of that plane. So I said, somebody did something awful. I knew that there was a potential for my being mobilized as a Navy officer. So I literally went upstairs, put on my Navy clothes, even though I had retired about a month or two earlier into what's called IRR, individually ready, Individual Ready Reserve, I knew I was probably gonna be immobilized. So I went, dressed, got on, got on my uniform, head downstairs, and then all of a sudden, by then already the second plane had hit, but then as I was walking out the door, all of a sudden the third plane hit the Pentagon, and I realized I, that was a war zone now. Is that where you were going to go? I was going to go to the Pentagon. Wow. My unit goes to the Pentagon. It was, uh, in fact, my unit was divided into two parts. One man, that 24-hour joint military intelligence center which is for all elements it's politics it's it's everything and then the second part of my unit manned what was called the national Mil maritime intelligence center they track our ships around the world not our ships other people's ships so they're they're the ones who are aware of all the movements in the world we were on the opposite sides of the pentagon unfortunately their side was hit oh, no. and there were people in my unit who were killed it's only a unit of a hundred plus people there were people who were killed so my unit really was directly affected immediately by it and i knew then i didn't know it at that point but i knew inherently that I was going to be mobilized. So I went to the Pentagon anyway, got there late at night. Uh, um, it was still burning. Uh, saw there was nothing, there was nothing to do. Went home, came back the next morning, and I met with uh, Wolfowitz and Ken de Graffenried, and they said, listen, you've got the clearances. We're going we're gonna to use your clearances. You're not going to be mobilized. We need you for something else. And what they essentially did was they, they told me, we don't know who hit us. At this point, we, we, we're still pretty clueless. We don't know who hit us, but we know somebody hit us. We know it's some sort of intelligence structure, uh, some sort of terrorist structure. Uh, figure out who, the, who it was. What were their positions at the time? Paul Wolfowitz was Deputy Secretary of Defense. Okay. And Ken de Graffenried, 
Yeah, he was, I think, deputy in um, international security affairs, I believe. It could have been policy. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what his position was, but he was essentially a, a deputy assistant secretary in the Pentagon. Uh, he had spent most of his life dealing with subversive uh, warfare threats to the United States, terrorist threats. He was really one of our national assets in terms of understanding how the Soviets had waged war Mm -hmm. against the West. So he was keen on trying to figure out what network was there, what was going on here. And that was essentially what they told me to do. They, I, I asked them, well, what am I supposed to do? And the answer was, you figure it out. Uh, so there was no real directive other than a story that was told to me that if there's a snowstorm and a bunch of people get caught in an airport, the musicians will somehow find each other. Mm. Um, the terrorists always seem to find each other. So that was all I had to go on, and it, so I created what eventually became known as the rogue intelligence cell by people who didn't want that to happen, and then later that became the colonel, that became the Office of Special Plans. So at that point, your State Department job was forgotten about? At that point, they knew I was gonna be in train for State okay. Department still for a while, so they okay. figured, let's use them for what we can until that comes through. So why, at this point, the country's been attacked. You know people that have been killed at the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. This, the um, feeling in the country at the time was a sense of unity that we haven't seen, in my opinion, since that, that point. Correct. And yet, at the Pentagon, they're still playing games. Yeah, they played games from day one. It was it was amazing because you would walk around, you'd go, the only way to get to the Pentagon at that point was by subway. You get off the subway in the Pentagon station and you had to show you had a need to be there mm-hmm. at that point. You couldn't get off the subway otherwise. So I would take the subway, get uh, park downtown, go, go in town, and when you're in downtown, all you would see are Humvees and so forth. I mean, it was a militarized city, completely empty of anybody else. Everybody was terrified and scared. We were waiting for the other shoe to drop, and there was a strong sense uh, that I'd imagine the generations before in Pearl Harbor felt. We were yeah. under attack, and we knew it. Right. And yet, I get to the Pentagon, I meet with Ken DeGraff and Reed, I meet with, with Paul Wolfowitz, and then my first task is to, is to get my uh, clearances, the passwords. My clearance was still active because I was individual ready reserve, but the passwords, because I was no longer technically assigned to the alert center as I had been two months earlier, the password expired. So the first thing I had to do is just get the password to get back into the intelligence computers. And I had to meet with the DIA uh, leadership. And that was already the first exposure. Here, we were literally still pulling bodies from the rubble, literally. The, the br- building was still on fire. And the only thing on the mind, well, maybe not the only thing, but certainly a very pre- prevalent thought that the leadership of the DIA had was I'm being hired to blame them. That there was a a strong bureaucratic sense of threat that they felt by my very presence. That here was a DIA guy, a Navy officer, who was suddenly called in to go over all the intelligence. They saw it as the beginning of an investigation into their failure. 
rather than what it was, which was, we've just been attacked. Who did it? And at that point, there were reports of more attacks coming. No one knew. We all thought that it was about that. We thought this was the beginning of something massive uh, rather than that they did it and they had really only this on their plate at that moment. Uh, a month later, we started with the um, with the anthrax attacks, and we saw that instantly as part of the second wave of attacks. But the, the truth was, we were we were rather surprised the other shoe didn't drop. We were convinced that another shoe was going to drop imminently. I've heard the joke in in D.C. that the bureaucracy is self-aware, and it is true that each agency is very tribal, and it's protect yourself protect the agency first usually why is that why why is the concern not who killed the people that are in our building versus we got to protect dia i think that um people in the bureaucracy are conditioned very heavily from the day they enter the bureaucracy into understanding how to justify their presence uh, budget-wise, personnel-wise, attention-wise, and of course the big currency in Washington is importance-wise. And as a result, they understood, most of these bureaucratic operators understood that their power ultimately emanates from the bureaucracy. Uh, it wasn't always that way in Washington. There was a good article written by Richard uh, by Robert Tucker, he was a he was a a scholar in Washington, who founded the National Interest Magazine. Uh, and he had come to Washington in the '40s, and he retired in the late '80s. And they asked him in this article, "What was really the big change in Washington uh, in those 40 years that you're 40, 50 years that you had been a prominent figure here?" And his answer was that Washington used to be a town of big ideas. So your currency in Washington was very much around whether you could really contribute something to big ideas, either organize big ideas, develop big ideas, or organize a bureaucracy around big ideas. But in the wake of the Vietnam War, big ideas became dangerous. It was a bureaucrat's death trap. So it became a town of very many small ideas and bureaucratic maneuver. And in that world, the currency became your ability to navigate the bureaucracy. So I think the fundamental character of Washington had changed. And by the time 9-11 hit, this was a town of bureaucrats. This was a town of small ideas that were dealing a death of a thousand cuts to American life. Uh, but it was it was still convincing itself that it was operating prudently in the national interest. So they never thought that they were hurting the American interest. They thought they were protecting it. But it was a town of small ideas and bureaucratic maneuver. Okay, so you're you're part of this, what is it called? The Rogue Intelligence Yeah, Unit? I, I was called in to do this Rogue, to just look at this intelligence and come up with a policy analysis. Uh, first of all, an awareness of what we were dealing with, and two, what, from a policy point of view, does that mean? And there was intelligence prior to, that hadn't been shared, right? 
and that was through the FBI, I think. I'd have to check. There was a lot of intelligence out there. It, it the, the FBI had had, there were a number of organizations in the U.S. government who had been tracking some of the elements of the 9-11 conspiracy uh, team. Uh, I know there was an Air Force intelligence unit uh, out in uh, out in the UAE. It was run by a guy named uh, Haig Melchisedian, and they were on top of a number of these these guys. Uh, unfortunately, they were suppressed again for bureaucratic reasons because they were Air Force intelligence, and the CIA thought it was their purview, so they didn't want this to gain prominence within the intelligence community. But what, because so, then the CIA isn't as valuable because Air yeah, Force they were well, and and it's just again, I I never knew what the word rice bowl meant until I entered government. Yeah. but it's such a prevalent. Can term. you explain? I've heard that people use that term but it's not can you explain what it means yeah I it took me a long time to figure out what it means <laughs> uh, apparently it's that you have your little rice bowl and you husband it very carefully and protect it and you don't want anybody else sticking their their chopsticks or fork into your rice bowl and that you lived in this fiefdom of your rice bowl essentially right so you had these fiefdoms so I heard that when Space Force was announced and the rest of the military branches weren't happy because they wanted that funding and those resources yeah. to have their own different space entities. Exactly. There was an awareness among policymakers that this was a problem. I mean, that's why you see so many things now called joint. They would take everything and they would put a J in it to make it seem like they're <laughs> forcing bureaucracies to work together. And it was a genuine attempt. And in some cases it worked, but by and large, bureaucracies continued to think like bureaucracies. And I've never seen an intensity, emotional intensity of intellectual debate as much as I've, not in, really intellectual, but positional debate as between bureaucracies. It, it becomes very emotional and very personal. It's really stunning to watch. I never thought that yeah. these vast impersonal organizations could acquire almost like a sports team type royalty. Right. But they do. And it's hard to understand if you haven't experienced it because it is so illogical. Right. And so from the outside, you hear reports of things that have happened. And it's like, well, why would anyone do that? That sounds so petty yeah. and stupid. But it's a well, massive issue. Especially since most Americans think that most government officials ought to be thinking first and foremost only about the American interest. Right. Especially and after something like 9-11. Especially after 9-11. Yeah. But in general, there are employees. As an American right. people, they are our employees. And we need to, to remember that. But they don't always remember that in Washington. Right. So when was your first investigation? So you have your clearance. You're working in this um, kind of pickup unit right and then what happens well the pickup unit lasts about two three months for me uh -huh. because by uh, come january february my clearance is finally uh john bolton who was my employer uh who was the one bringing me into the state department he was under secretary of state for for the t bureau the t bureau has the four uh arms control political military affairs non-proliferation verification bureau uh under under it under him uh so i i entered the state department then so i left the pentagon uh in the meantime the people I brought on board, some from my unit, in fact, 
uh, morphed into a larger organization at, at DOD, at the Department of Defense, that formed the core of what became Special Plans, uh, the Office of Special Plans under the Office of uh, the uh, Deputy Secretary of, Defe uh, uh, Secretary of Defense under Doug Feith uh, uh, management. So I left that and came to state. And within a month of being at state, uh, there were a number of things going on, and uh, one of them resulted in my first investigation. It was very clear that having failed to prevent me from getting to at state, that uh, Armitage was going to do whatever he could to get me out of state. Mm -hmm. And investigations became the mechanism to do that. So the first sign of real trouble was there was a letter about the Syria Accountability Act that was being sent on behalf of the U.S. government to the leadership in Congress saying that we oppose it, uh, oppose the Syria Accountability Act, which was an act that would penalize uh, companies and others for, for dealing with the Syrian regime. And it was a public letter. It was, it was not a classified letter. Uh, but it spoke in the name of the U.S. government, and there's a clearance process inside the U.S. government, not connected to uh, security clearances. Another type of clearance process, so when a document goes out uh, to uh, the public or alternatively to another government, it could be classified, it could be not classified, it would have to go through what's called a clearance process where every bureau that has some role in the policy that is affected by this document has to sign off on it. And they can, they can defer, and it would be noted that this bureau does not agree, but they have to be given a chance to sign off on it. So if it's the Secretary of State saying something, all the departments at state that would be affected should be included in that. Um, if it's in the name of the U.S. government, it has to go beyond the State Department. It has to include, obviously, the White House, but also other government agencies that are involved, like Department of Defense, Treasury, and so forth. So there was a document, this one about the Syrian Accountability Act, that went out in the name of the U.S. government, and it had not even gotten clearance, uh, this internal clearance process beyond state. So I mentioned that to somebody at the Department of Defense that there was this letter going out in their name too. They had never seen it. Uh, so uh, they raised a protest and won the protest in the internal government structures that forced the State Department to share that document with the Department of Defense before it would be sent out to Congress. And that so infuriated uh, Armitage and confirmed his fears that I wasn't loyal to him that he instigated a diplomatic security. Is there internal, they protect obviously State Department employees, but they're also the internal investigatory branch of the Department of State. He initiated a an investigation of me, uh, having said that I sent a proprietary uh, information to an outside estate. In legal terms, an outside estate really means outside the government, but for them, they used, they said that Department of Defense was an outside estate. So it was an unclassified letter. Uh, it was sent to Department of Defense because the clearance process demanded it, and they used that to investigate me. And of course, there was nothing there. There was no there there. There was no crime. There was nothing. What were they insinuating that you had done? 
they said that there was some wrong done by sending this letter that belonged to state to Department of Defense. Uh, and they used the terminology that is usually meant for something that is protected information to outside the US government, essentially leaking right. classified documents. So they used the language, but the proprietary, proprietary document in question here was a public letter. Right. And the outside estate wasn't outside the government, it was the Defense Department. But let's say someone, so basically, it could appear that you had le they were accusing you of leaking classified information. That's not what happened. But from right. the outside, that sounds bad. That sounds it sounds like I did leak classified information. Right. But it, it really shows the, the critical thing that we're talking about is this so deeply bureaucratic was the outlook that sending something to the Department of, of Defense right. was seen to be an act of treason. <laughs> uh, um, so, well, that's interesting. You said Armitage realized you weren't loyal to him. Now, I mean, he realized it all along that I wasn't but, loyal to but, him, but he. But when, I, I don't know um, who takes oaths other than the president and the vice president. I think so, I think some of the cabinet as well. But the, the point is, it's not to anyone individual; it's to the Constitution, right? Any political appointee. Well, actually, um, all government employees have to take an oath okay. that includes loyalty to the Constitution. Political appointees have a slightly different oath, but it's also to the Constitution. It's not to your bureaucracy. Right, and not to, so where does Armitage <laughs> uh, feel justified in enforcing loyalty to him? Or how, how does he have that mindset? And is that common throughout, or is this just one guy? He's just allowed to call you into investigation whenever. Right, I mean, he can essentially without He used his office to an insti instigate an investigation that, frankly, had no legal valid foundations, mm -hmm. and ultimately, that's why it was dismissed. It is because there was no foundation for the invest. Not only was there no crime, there was no basis for the investigation. I remember uh, John Bolton ultimately called in diplomatic security and told them, you know, you end this investigation and you end it now or else it's going to be on the front page of the Washington Post tomorrow because this investigation has no legal basis. Um, this, though, was after months. So when they start investigating you, what happens? You know, They go through a, an immensely detailed two, three hour interrogation that talks about emails you sent, really everything you've done, very specific. And they're, mm -hmm. they're taking very careful notes or even recording it. And then it sort of goes away for a while. Right. And then all of a sudden, two months later or a month later, they call you back in and they go over it again and again and again, and then do this a third time. So ultimately what they're looking for at that point, because there was no legal foundation for, there was no, there was no legal, there was no crime. Right. So they were investigating the void and th there was no crime done upon investigating the void, something that they didn't think they'd find, but they did. 
So then comes the perjury trap, which is they're trying to use your own testimony against itself. Right. To f- they're trying to use their own testimony, your own testimony against yourself to trap yourself in a perjury. Right. So the first conversation, they're asking you, what day did you send this email? Correct. And then the second time, two months later, they ask you again, and it would be hard to recall that information. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they, they get you right away because, say... I had sent this letter to the Department of Defense and I got scared. Let's say I got scared that day uh, when they interrogated me. So, no, I didn't do that. You know, sort of deny it. Well, they got you on perjury right then because right. they have all your emails. They have everything. Right. So. But can, but is that, if you're lying, how, is there a distinction between lying and just not remembering something? Like it, it would be hard to recall the exact date I sent an email. You know, we, everyone sent. Well, they say that that's today. what you should do. That you should always, uh, when you're under these investigations, because, you know, there are also honest differences in their memory right. lapses. If you ever really record, uh, you know, for for our listeners out there, something one day it would be nice. Just write down something very specific, and then come back to it three months later and see how well you actually remembered it. Right. Um, and it's amazing how different things can be after a few months. But you could be prosecuted for perjury. Yes. For misremembering, for saying the first time I sent it on a Tuesday, and the second time saying I sent it on a Thursday. Oh, absolutely. It could that that's grounds for perjury. So they essentially didn't find anything in the initial investigation. They didn't then, find and anything. And then they went to this where they can kind of yeah, like get kept, you a moment or whatever. Exactly. They would consistently come back to the same sort of things from various different angles. So you're not remembering it's exactly the same question, but trying to get at the same sort of information in different ways so that you would provide an inconsistent testimony. Were you aware what they were doing at the time? The second time it became clear to me that's what they were doing. There is also an additional element, though, because, for example, there was John Bolton, my boss, who's also a very sharp lawyer. Uh-huh. And naturally, one would want to talk with your boss about this. Right. You're scared. You're alone. You want to talk with him about it. But the second part is perjury. The first part's perjury. The second part is conspiracy to obstruct justice. If you talk about your case to somebody else, it could be seen as coordinating testimony which rises to the level of obstruction of justice. So it's also a mechanism to force you to be all alone. Because you talk to anybody about it, it's obstruction of justice. So I couldn't talk with John about it, John Bolton. But what if you didn't know that going in? Because Well, then you're, that's, yeah. that's the danger, that you can be naive and get trapped by this. And it's amazing how many people do get trapped by that. And I, I don't know why I avoided it. I didn't realize those were the tricks. But by the time the second time rolled around, it became apparent to me that's what's going on. Where are these investigators? They're from DOJ or DOD? No, they were internal investigators at the Department of State because ultimately they couldn't convince anybody at the Department of Justice to take up this case because there was no crime. So it's diplomatic security, the people that are supposed to protect ambassadors and stuff. Right. And 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 also to investigate security leaks and so forth inside the State okay. Department. But that was what Richard Armitage had full control over. So that was the body that he used to go after his enemies. Wow. So did you have a lawyer present with you? Unwisely, the first uh, two times, no. 
it was unwise. One should always have a lawyer, and yeah. one shouldn't cooperate. I know it's unpatriotic. Uh, one wants to have, and that's what motivates so many people. It motivated me at the time. It's like I want to get to the truth here. I want these people to know what the truth is. Right. But it, it is immensely dangerous to do that. Right. Be or people say, I didn't do anything wrong. I have nothing to hide. Ask exactly. They, and, yeah. and, and you know that you've done nothing wrong. So you really are. The more I talk, the more it's going to show. I don't, I didn't do anything wrong. So mm -hmm. you talk and you don't realize there are these traps and these, these dangers that you're entering into. So this is again, just months after nine 11 and they're spending all this time investigating mm -hmm. you for something that was clearly yeah, this is March 2002. 9-11 happened in September 2001. We're talking six within six months. Right. So then when you did get a lawyer, you're on a government salary. How yeah. are you paying for that lawyer? Out of pocket. These are not cheap. Washington lawyers are very expensive. Uh, mine was uh, $500 an hour. Wow. And there's many hours involved. So you will get very hefty bills out of this in the end of the day. Uh, you could use a government lawyer. However, a government lawyer is committed to the interests of the U.S. government, not to yours. He's not your lawyer then. He can help a little bit, but uh, he is not out there to help and protect you. So he won't tell you, don't talk. It's not in his, that's not his mandate. So you get lucky, basically. Yeah, I got lucky the first time, but it raised my, it basically raised my uh, radar antenna. Right. I, I knew how dangerous this was at that point. And then what happens the second time? The second time was uh, the New York Times published a number of articles that included uh, analyses of our war plans for Iraq. This is before the war. So war plans ostensibly leaked. I'm not going to uh, confirm that because I don't know if it's been declassified, whether they were or weren't correct or accurate war plans. But the accusation was that the war plans had leaked to the New York Times. Uh, they entered, uh, th this was a de Department of Defense investigation uh, internal because the, the there was a lot of anger and worry about it. But this shows you that how the bureaucracies were detached on some level from their leadership. The investigations at the Department of Defense began to focus on a specific group of people, later called neocons, essentially those who were pro, go, who were advocating going to war with Iraq. Uh, they invested, there was no evidence that they had leaked any war plans. In fact, there was a lot of evidence that they weren't even exposed to the war plans uh, themselves. They weren't operators of the, of the they, they were policy advocates, not military strategy, military planners. So most of them didn't even have access to these war plans, but were still subjected to. So there you saw instantly how the bureaucracy was beginning to mobilize to go after the political appointees. Right. Um, which is a, a perpetual tension for conservative administrations is uh, the bureaucracy really doesn't like political appointees from the from the right. Which is important because the president's the only elected member of the executive branch. Right. And so that's the only democratic means to correct whatever policies are not 
you raise a very important point here is that the political appointees, one could look down on them as hacks, sure. which they are to some extent, but they're the only democratic control over the bureaucracy. I mean, the president manifests the will of the American people. His appointees are the application of the will of the American people. So uh, the political appointee structure, which by the way, separates us from many other countries in the world, which have no such structures, is really a very critically important structure to the democratic control over our government. It is what causes so many bureaucracies to hate these Democrat, these political appointees. I've heard numerous times people at state who didn't know who I was, they didn't know my face, so they would say it in my in earshot of, uh, you know, we're not going to let these yahoos out in Kansas determine what we, because they saw themselves as the experts right. who are in touch with the world. The smart people. Yeah, yeah they, they were an elite who had access to the world, who were responsible for our interactions with the world, and they weren't going to let, in their view, these yahoos from outside the, belt, the Washington Beltway influence their brilliance and their policy. By the way, the yahoos outside the Beltway are the ones actually fighting wars that pay the price of these decisions. They're the ones who actually fight the wars and they're the ones who are their employees, ultim employers ultimately. Right. Um, and moreover, it, it, you know, having worked in this town now for 40 years, I put my money on the will of the American people over the, I do too. <laughs> over the I mean, will of a bureaucracy. We, we have not won a war since World War II. So Correct. And the these were all bureaucratically run <laughs> exactly. wars. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so you're so they start this. This is the second investigation. Yeah, you get caught up in, right? So they so these DOD investigators are not allowed to come into the Department of State. That that has to be done in coordination with the Secretary of State. So that was the second time Armitage basically invited them in to interrogate me. Again, I had. I was in the State Department. I wasn't even dealing with Iraq policy at that point. And yet they were investigating me for the leak of war plans. Just you or someone else, too? Uh, they were suspicious of John Bolton, too, but they didn't investigate him directly as far as I know. I'm not sure. John but you guys couldn't talk about it. We couldn't talk about it, so I wasn't sure that he wasn't being investigated. Why? But why? I do know that John threw them out of the office after a while. Uh, after the first interrogation, they wanted to come back, again, for a perjury trap. And he said, this is a fishing expedition. If you want to go fishing, there are plenty of good rivers out in Wyoming. <laughs> so. so they're investigating. You have nothing to do with this. They're just so basically you had created an enemy. Yeah. And any excuse, any excuse to launch an investigation because it served two purposes. One is you could get rid of a person legal in, in, a, in a, a legal basis. Basically, you could trap him in perjury or conspiracy to obstruct justice or alternatively you shut him down and it and it worked i was terrified i never called my my friends at dod to talk about policy people who i'd grown up with talking policy about i was scared to coordinate i was scared to call them up so it essentially it shut us down but isn't that part of good governance is to coordinate with the other agencies i mean it's critical right it's critical and to coordinate why would that be obstructing justice if you were talking to them because if they were being investigated for the same thing i was being investigated for or potentially could be investigated even if they weren't for something i was being investigated for the suspicion is that i 
contacted them in order to coordinate testimony, which is obstruction of justice. So we couldn't talk. So it's made policy completely ineffective and you so you can't do anything you can't talk to anyone about it right you're living in your own little world then and dod is well aware that you can't do it dod is well aware of it and they're facing the same thing because they were going through investigation all these people at dod were going through investigation after investigation after investigation and and so everybody became atomized we we all sort of retreated into our own, own little biospheres right so the people that are not familiar with this world especially patriotic Americans would say you're would assume that these investigations have some merit otherwise why would they occur right yeah so if you have the president and he's hearing all these does that um, make him suspicious or was Bush aware of the what was happening basically I'm not sure that George Bush was fully aware of what was happening Uh, I'm not convinced that he fully understood how the bureaucracy under him operated Mm -hmm. as a result and also by the way this is not the way america always used to be i'd imagine that there were times when investigations were used improperly Uh, those people who uh, were in the first in the reagan administration insist that this really began under them with iran contra and there's no reason for me to doubt what they say. Most of them are, are really decent and honest people who have who are only tangential to it. They won't they don't have to justify themselves. We're saying this. So it's obviously been since the eighties at least. I think really Watergate created this climate of got you legally. Mm. Um and there were some who will say that even Watergate itself was to some extent politically motivated in that sense. Uh, but nevertheless, we definitely have had since the 70s, early 80s, this trend toward using legal structures in government to fight policy debates or fight clique debates. And uh, it's becoming so pronounced that it got ultimately in the recent years to the level of the presidency itself. Right. So so could you have gone to jail theoretically? Yeah, easily. Can you explain the Scooter Libby case? Scooter Libby uh, was several investigations later. Um, I was involved with it, too, even though. There was nothing I had anything tangentially to do with the materials that were involved. But what happened to Scooter was the perjury trap that we described. They call him in. They called him in several times. uh, And they got into a very detailed timeline that had some merit in terms of getting to precision because Tim Russert was... Uh, the leaker, well, Tim Russert was a journalist for NBC at the time, and he was the first one, they thought, that he was the first one to publish the name of Valerie Plame, who was, uh, in her f- earlier life, had been an undercover uh, CIA officer. And that's illegal to leak the name of an undercover CIA officer saying that they're CIA. You don't have to say they were undercover. All you have to do is say they work for the CIA. Now, Valerie Plame was going about town at that time uh, telling people she worked for the CIA. So this was a, a really, truly open secret. Uh, but nevertheless, sh- her husband and her had been involved in peddling this idea of what was called then the Uranium Niger conspiracy, that somehow some clique in the U.S. government, namely those who advocated war with Iraq, 
invented this story of pursuing, uh, of Iraq pursuing uranium in Niger, and that the Niger, Niger government had provided Iraq with this uh, uranium for their nuclear program, which had been a violation of the ceasefire and could justify a restart of the war. Valerie Plame's husband, who had been a diplomat in Africa, I, th I believe even in Niger uh, before, was con she actually advocated the CIA send him on contract. So right there is something rather odd, is that somebody can advocate for their own spouse to get a huge government contract, right. which never was, by the way, investigated, the ethics of that. But he was sent to Niger to investigate this claim and whitewash it, namely say, no, Iraq never did that and so forth. Most of us had not even known of this at all, mm -hmm. this Uranium Niger accusation nor investigation of the accusation. But the theory was that in revenge for that investigation, uh, uh, somebody who advocated war with Iraq uh, leaked Valerie Plame's name to the public as a CIA agent in the attempt to more than harass but threaten them threaten her life uh, because uh, of her previous uh, undercover existence. And the suspicion naturally fell to Scooter Libby, who had met on, a, uh, I believe it was a Wednesday, with, with Tim Russert, who apparently had been the first uh, report of this. So uh, on, a, on a Thursday or, or something like that. Uh, so the timelines of when Scooter Libby met Tim Russert and another journalist as well, namely uh, Judith Miller, became very important here. And Scooter being exactly like uh, one had described earlier, he was a great patriot, he was an extremely meticulously honest man and meticulous, and frankly a very sharp lawyer. He had made his career in Washington as a lawyer. Um, felt he had nothing to hide mm. and felt why I, you know i'd love to help these guys i'm going to talk to them um to to really clear out the 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 deck so they can find the real guy because i didn't do it That's yeah exactly yeah. he thought let's find the real guy because whoever did this it may be somebody i'm working with and is on my side but this is wrong right um and lo and behold they were after him he was their target so they they teed it up later we found out by the way Armitage admitted it, that Armitage was the leaker a month earlier, mm. um, and that he was the one who, who leaked Valerie Plame's name. So, Which I believe the, Patrick Fitzgerald, which was the prosecutor of Security, said that he knew that. He knew Armitage. He knew that all along. Yeah. And yet he still pursued Scooter Libby in a perjury trap. Right. And one has to remember, Scooter was put in... He wasn't put in jail, but he was convicted on perjury. Nothing else. It was a crime based on an event that never happened. A process crime. A process crime. And moreover, it was over such a meticulous detail that most likely was a function of memory lapse. Whether it was a Thursday or a Tuesday. Remember, this is an investigation took place a year and a half afterwards. I don't think there are many people out there who could remember whether something happened a year and a half ago on a Thursday or a Tuesday. No. And yet that's what it was about. And he was just, I think, Trump pardoned him 
Trump partially pardoned him. He commuted his sentence okay. so that he would do community time, but no jail. He was convicted for two and a half years of jail. He suspended his jail sentence, so he only had to do community time. The problem Bush is or, or Trump. I thought Bush. Trump, okay. Bush. Bush did. No, I'm so Trump. Fully pardoned. Fully pardoned yeah. him, which was critical. And, and let me explain why. If your sentence is commuted, you are still convicted of a felony. Right. As a felon, you are not allowed to get government contracts mm. or be employed by the U.S. government. Or vote. And more importantly, you cannot practice law. Wow. So he's a lawyer who suddenly has been barred from practicing law, as well as the fact that he can't get government contracts, which Washington runs even... Even most research in, private research institutes in Washington, many of them get government contracts, so they can't give him an employment. They can't give him anything. So essentially, they strip from him all livelihood. Um, what did he? Because there was a significant gap between Bush and Trump. So what did he do during that time? So he went to the Hudson Institute and became a fellow. Mm -hmm. Could not get money from from uh, the, the Hudson Institute got considerable amount of money from the US government. Uh, but he couldn't participate in those conferences uh, or 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 uh, investigations or uh, research uh, activities. But uh, since most of Hudson Institute's privately funded, they paid for him for a salary, far, far, far less than what he was earning per year as a, as a lawyer before he went into government. But it's a good, good example of somebody who was earning millions of dollars a year before he went into government, served his country, did the best he could, and came out of it impoverished for life. So you're wrapped up in that. Was it just because it was you were on? Armitage's list of all right I'm going to try and these are the people I don't like I'm going to investigate them any chance I can yes it was partly that I mean it, you know the Armitage hit list expanded to anybody who opposed it's you know he reached out to Democrats in Congress mm -hmm. who had their own reasons to hate neoconservatives he reached out to a lot of people and as a result there was a fairly large body of people who were beginning to go after a fairly large body of people okay and at this time I had gone over to work at the vice president's office under Cheney. So obviously when they were investigating Scooter Libby for Valerie Plame, the suspicion was, well, I don't know, suspicion or whatever, because again, investigator Fitzgerald already knew that Armitage, I mean that uh, Scooter Libby was not involved mm -hmm. in the Valerie Plame leak. But nevertheless, they brought me in for several, seven hours of interrogation over this leak as well, even though I had not even ever met Valerie Plame, never met Tim Russert, never even knew about Uranium Niger. They did investigate me actually twice on Uranium Niger, and I didn't even know what it was. So, but that's, again, it it's, it's not the crime. These were fishing expeditions. They would find some crime and then tangentially say, well, you might have known, and boom, you're suddenly under investigation. And remember, government officials don't have all the rights that private citizens have. If a government official is suspected of something, you can investigate them. Right, which is important. We should be able to do that, but it's clear. we should be able yeah. to do it if you if you know there's a leak to the Soviets over mm -hmm. some critical piece of information, you should be able to investigate that without having to go through a thousand hoops. You should be, but but it's it's prone to misuse. So, 
at the time um whether I, neocon is such a charged term now yeah but, at the time, President Bush was in favor of going to war with Iraq, right. correct? Yes. So that's the Democratic elected leader. Yes. And they're internally, the bureaucracy is fighting against that and investigating people that are right helping the president do that, right? Correct. I mean, the president had made clear what he was want, what he wanted to do. Whether it was wise or not was a different question, and whether anybody was really a neoconservative or not. I mean, I wasn't, but but that doesn't matter. It became a right. term of reference to anybody who supported Iraq. Yeah. And no one can really define it now, because yeah. John Kerry and um, Hillary Clinton supported invading Iraq at the time as well. That's right. And uh, so and and. It, it, to be clear, I it, in this period, a number of us didn't even have anything to do with Iraq in the period of the invasion, which, uh, you know, I got to state in uh, February 2002 until I left in August 2003. I was not allowed to work on Iraq, but nevertheless, still, I was investigated for all these Iraq things. So, again, it. it bears out the point that you don't have to be involved with something that it's a it's a hook to investigate rather than there's a crime we really need to get to the bottom of the crime and this guy is just too too central to this thing clearly we have to have an investigation of him so it's that the crime isn't driving the invest investigations the investigations were driving the crimes which effectively takes all of you out of you can't do your jobs correct so how long total were you in the administration total i was there from uh starting in september 2011 uh, one all the way to august 2007 so about six years and you were investigated seven times seven times in six years correct so how how would you say that affected your ability to do your job it affected me on so many different levels. Uh, first of all, I just stopped conversing substantively with most of my friends, uh, which was a very lonely thing, but so what? You know, I mean, <laughs> my being lonely doesn't matter. But the point was it obstructed the proper functioning of policy. Right. The second thing it did was, since one of those investigations was involved the Israelis, I couldn't talk with the Israelis. And my job was to coordinate policy with the Israelis on various things. So it obstructed my ability to actually execute my job directly. Uh, How did you, what did you do? How did you get around that? The way I got around it was I made sure my door was open and I had three other people in the room with me whenever I talked to an Israeli. Mm, So you would have witnesses, basically? I would have witnesses. I mean, whether these people had anything to do with the policy, I didn't care. I needed witnesses. So I would always ensure that there were other people in the room when an Israeli came. Could uh, could you explain the dual loyalty issue? The dual loyalty issue is that you're not operating in good faith uh, as an American. Namely, that it, it is it starts from the assumption that American and Israeli interests are fundamentally at odds, which. It's a valid position. People can hold it. There's no problem with that. Um, But if it begins to drive the idea that somebody who's Jewish cannot hold in his heart the uh, loyalty ultimately to the United States when he's in a a fully official capacity, 
it, 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 it convicts you essentially for being Jewish rather than who you are uh, in terms of your, your opinions. And is that a significant problem? It is a significant problem, I think, on two levels. One is a lot of Jews go out of their way to show that they're not Jewish uh, by being anti-Israeli. And you, you do see that phenomenon among my, many Jews. Some understand that they're useful as Jews uh, for anti-Israeli policies that, that just cover uh, for, to say, I'm not anti-Israeli, all these, all these Jews are, you know, Dennis Ross and others are, are imposing these policies. Um, but it was, uh, in my case, it was simply uh, terrifying. It just shut me down again. It, it, I was scared to so say. So you were what investigated I for. There was a leak, and well, there was a document that ostensibly leaked to the Israelis about. Well, there were two two investigations that involved the Israelis. One was, the first one was called the Larry Franklin investigation. There was a, a U.S. policy position, a document that leaked to the Israelis. And the, the feeling was, where did it come from? Now, the truth was, this was a policy written by the Israelis that they had given the U.S. government, saying, we would really hope this would be your policy. So the Israelis had it to begin with. It was their, it was their document to begin with. But there was an Israeli document that now was a U.S. document that the Israelis had. So there was a suspicion, okay, let's use this to investigate the same crowd who was for the Iraq war, essentially. It was about Iraq. Um, to investigate these people because the suspicion is that Israel's anyway putting us up to Iraq. The dual loyalty came in that this isn't an American interest. The Jews are getting us to go to war in Iraq because Iraq's a big enemy of Israel. The truth was the Israelis were bitterly opposed to the Iraq war. Hmm. Um, they, they were yelling at us every day saying your enemy is Iran not Iraq you know this is stupid you're just gonna screw yourself up doing this whether they were right or wrong whether uh, there were there were heated arguments believe me so first of all there's a fallacy right there but the point was it was used essentially to say that there was this crowd of people who advocated war with Iraq who really weren't working as Americans they were working dual loyalty as Jews for the Israeli government mm -hmm. Um, so this document became a nice hook to start a very serious investigation that ostensibly would get to the core of this. And they nabbed a guy named Larry Franklin, who was meeting with APAC. APAC is the Jewish lobby in Washington. He was meeting with some of their officials, and apparently this document was there, apparently given to these guys by the Israeli government to lobby for its adoption. But nevertheless, the suspicion was Larry Franklin gave it to them. And then who did Larry Franklin get it from? Well, Larry Franklin was a DOD official, Air Force intelligence guy, DOD official, working in the Office of Special Plans at the, at the Department of Defense. So all of a sudden, it spread immediately outward to all the various people in the US government uh, who were associated with Larry Franklin, myself included. In the end, by the way, Larry Franklin was convicted for a felony, unfortunately was not pardoned, and the public sort of urban myth is he was convicted of espionage for this document. The truth was he wasn't. That was thrown out as it was very clear there was no such document. It was an Israeli document to begin with. He was convicted because he had what was called a... Um, a pass to uh, 
classified information should never leave a classified space. But there are certain people who are uh, investigated to the level of clearance that they are allowed to be couriers because sometimes a physical document has to move from one place to another. Larry was a courier. He mm -hmm. was sanctioned as a courier. And he had two or three classified documents that he needed transfer from one DOD facility to another. And on the way, he stopped by at his house. The couriers have a geographic limit of 80 miles. 80 miles is they're allowed to go uh, to uh, within that 80 mile circle to transfer documents. Um, Larry Franklin's house is 83 miles from Washington. Oh, no. So they convicted him on three miles. Wow. Um, but he had, he was f legitimate transfer of documents from one facility to another. He just stopped by to say hi to his wife, who was sick. He wanted to check on her. She's very sick. She wanted to check on her three miles outside the zone. That's what he was convicted of. Wow. So when you got out of government, what were your legal fees like? Tens of thousands of dollars. Wow which for somebody who had lived off of a salary, a government salary, <clears throat> it took me a long, long time to get over those. And they, you never quite get over them. How could this problem be fixed? I think there needs to be a series of public investigations in Congress, as well as public attention, mm -hmm paid to the use of investigations. I think if there's a silver lining to what's happened in the Trump administration and r really the awareness that's building over what went on right. in the Obama administration against Obama administration's political opponents, like the IRS scandal with Louise Lerner Side and other things. Exactly. The awareness is building. I think the time has come for a series of public investigations in Congress. Now, obviously, you'd have to have a sympathetic Congress. But I really think this is now something that has risen to the level of a national security threat. Yeah. That good people will not go into government. Right. They're terrified. People who go into government are shut down immediately. And those including who's, the president. Including the president. And those who are shut down or those who survive somehow... Uh, their post-government careers are dead. Right. And we saw this, too, where we had Anonymous and the de several op-eds during Trump of how the deep state is protecting the country from Trump's idiocy. Yeah. They have no right to do that. The, no. They they're don't set violating policy. the democratic will of the people. Right. One day I had to go to, you know, the, in the State Department, top secret clearance you can't bring to your desk. Your your desk is not considered a top secret environment, so there's a room you have to go to read the top secret uh, material. And I was known to many people at State uh, and not liked because of being a political appointee, being so associated with John Bolton and the President uh, uh, Bush and so forth. But they didn't know my face. So I would sit in this room and overhear conversations among all the other State Department employees who had no idea who I was. And the theme in it invariably was, how do we trip up the President? 
how do we make sure that his policies never get implemented? How do we make sure that these yahoos from outside the beltway can't influence policy, namely the American people? It, there was an arrogance, a sense of ownership of U.S. foreign policy that really would surprise people if they knew the depth to which this was really held in the souls of these people who ran our foreign policy. Well, it was obvious to me with Colonel Vindman, you know, during the impeachment trial where he was saying he Trump went against U.S. policy. Well, that's not how that works. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say that a democratically elected official goes against the democratic will of the people. Right. I mean, how a president goes against his own policies beyond me. But that's exactly, exactly what you're what you're saying is exactly the point. Right. You alluded to this earlier, just in terms of working in the government. What would you recommend to people today that that's their dream, their aspiration? You know, it's really sad. I have to say, if you if you're careful and you're really young, it's worth doing a year or two just to see what it's about, but keep your head down. Uh, don't expose who you are. But if, you know, if you're known, if you've got a public profile, and you're known to be a conservative especially, don't bother. Really? I mean, I hate to say this as a patriot. Uh, you know, I, my mom fled communist Czechoslovakia because this was the country that was free and this was this was her dream it was she always used to say when I was a kid I will not be silenced and that's why she came to this uh -huh. country and to to live through this and understand from my mom and her family some of which remained behind the sort of intimidation they lived through to see the beginning elements of this emerge in our bureaucracy is is sad it's Very just sad. really sad and that and you know americans good americans it's a it's a noble and patriotic thing to serve your government and yet it's dangerous so, and also never talk to investigators alone, hire a lawyer. <laughs> oh, that's the first thing I'd ever tell anybody. Yeah. No matter what, always have a lawyer and don't say anything. Yeah. And it, yes, you will hear, well, if you have nothing to hide, it doesn't matter. There's no crime, usually. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org so we can get in touch with you.